Hello, thank you very much for uh, giving up your lunch um, to come and listen to me. Actually, I, I'm talking about something that may be available at least for the uh, non-vegetarians in the audience in relatively few years. And um, my interest in this area arises from one of my uh, very pleasurable um, commitments, and that is on the Risk Advisory Committee to the European Food Safety Authority, which there was a chance it was going to be placed in Brussels, which would have been all right, but um, Silvio Berlusconi um, announced that the only place it could be uh, positioned was Parma, the home of gastronomy, or one of the homes of gastronomy in Italy. So we have splendid meetings down in Italy, and it really is a pleasure. And the take-home message of this lecture, which is uh, in a series on risk, is that I think there's some very vexing questions about food risk regulation, which um, stand in the way of what one might call good public policy with respect to uh, food concerns. And I mustn't forget to mention that this lecture or this series is sponsored by Sage Publications who are celebrating the social sciences. And if you want to celebrate them in qualitative research, Martin Bauer and I have an edited book called Qualitative Research with text, image, and sound available from Sage Publications and occasionally in the Economist Bookshop. So I can promote Sage and myself at the same time. So um, this is a lecture series called Thinking Like a Social Scientist. And although I come from a background in social psychology, I see myself when I talk about these issues as something of an undisciplined social scientist because, like many of the uh, interesting problems that crop up, a social psychological approach doesn't necessarily capture all the issues. One has to look sometimes at other disciplines. So here we have Dolly the Sheep. Uh, if you remember, Dolly the Sheep was uh, born in 1996 out of the Roslyn Institute. Uh, a number of scientists led by Ian Wilmot uh, produced Dolly, and this was by a technique called somatic cell nuclear transfer. Uh, it's a technique which is uh, not terribly reliable. It took around about 277 attempts before Dolly was produced. It is a little more reliable these days, but as I will indicate later on, it's still pretty unreliable. And as a technique for producing humans, Wilmot said he thought it was so unreliable as to be uh, quite implausible for cloning human beings. Uh, I think other people might have wondered whether even a reliable technique would have been such a good idea for cloning human beings, but that's another matter. So, 10 years after Dolly the Sheep, a company in the United States called Viergen uh, is now offering cloning services for cattle, pigs, horses, sheep, uh, and pets even. Um, I'm interested in the applications which have food relevance and not pets and that sort of thing. Uh, although you may have seen that rather nice cartoon in the... Uh, or thing in The Guardian the other day, a picture of a dog, uh, long discussion about people in northern China eating dogs and they were saying a dog is not just for dinner, which I thought was rather nice. Uh, anyway, so Viagen are doing this uh, and servicing a number of farmers in the United States and uh, at present in the United States there's a voluntary moratorium on what are called the F-zeros, those are the cloned animals. But the progeny of clones, the next generation, the F1s, are certainly entering the food chain in the United States. And it's conceivable they're in the food chain in Europe because we do import certain uh, products, certain meats and so forth from the United States. And although it's probably unlikely, it, it could even be uh, over here. Now, the reason the F0s won't go in the food chain is that they cost rather a lot. So it's about $30,000 to $40,000 to have a prime bull or a horse cloned. So the idea of uh, eating one of those, well, it would be a rather expensive steak. So what I want to do is just 
go through some of the uh, issues around regulation and that will lead on to the problems of governance. So as with any novel food, if that's my wife, tell her I'm talking. Thank you. Uh, as with any other novel food, there is normally some regulatory oversight, assessment. And in the United States, that's done by the uh, Food and Drugs Administration, which interestingly enough is both concerned with risk assessment and risk management. And it's interesting for people who are um, studying uh, the governance risk and so forth, that in Europe, the European Food Safety Authority, which was created in response to the crisis over bovine spongiform encephalitis, mad cow disease, it was the EFSA was set up with only responsibility for risk assessment. So in a way, the criticism that came out of the various agencies in this country and across Europe was that many of them were risk managers and risk assessors. They were too much in the pocket of farmers. And what we needed in Europe was an independent risk assessment agency. And that's what uh, EFSA does. Now, both the US FDA and EFSA were asked for an opinion. Scientists give opinions uh, on whether food products from cloned animals posed any risk for human consumption. And they both agreed that there was no additional risk over traditional meats. They both noted in their opinions that there were questions around animal health and welfare issues. So, for example, in the process of cloning, quite a number of the uh, clones have what is called large animal syndrome. They're born with very large hearts, livers, and they're basically not functioning organisms. So there's increased mortality and morbidity. And this normally happens within the first three to four weeks of life, and uh, of 100 attempts, probably 70 will die fairly quickly of some you know, not very pleasant um, uh, problems. Now, both the uh, FDA in the States and the European Food Safety Authority uh, invite the public to comment <clears throat> on novel foods and other things, in this case, animal cloning. And EFSA notes in its report, a large majority of the submissions, that is from the public, did not support cloning. In fact, 95% were opposed, but they were not scientific, they were personal views. And the FDA had the same problem. They said the agency is not charged with addressing non-science-based concerns, such as moral, religious, or ethical issues associated with animal cloning. So that's all very well. The public have their view, but in a way we have sound science leading these two risk assessment agencies, and that's where it stops. Now, in Europe, there was a new departure in that the uh, European Commission, well, DG Sanko, that's concerned with uh, consumer health and safety, invited the European Group on Ethics in Science and New Technology. This is a, a new uh, committee which reports directly to the president of the Commission, Barroso, and it's made up not just of ethicists, it's made up of scientists, some social scientists, uh, some lawyers, some philosophers, and uh, actually they do rather in informative and interesting uh, reports on a whole range of technologies. And just to cut a long story short, they say that there are significant animal welfare, welfare issues and doubts as to whether uh, animal cloning is ethically justified. They also doubted whether it was necessary, that whether you know, it would really lead to either an improvement in the quality of meats or it would lead to lower prices. Uh, they also said in terms of animal cloning they weren't sure whether uh, the uh, concerns they had would apply to the progeny and uh, like many good scientific papers ended up by saying more research is necessary. And then there was another innovation. Um, I was sitting on a, the EFSA committee of which I'm a member and I, and I was asked to pull together some social scientists <clears throat> to uh, 
assess what might be the possible public reactions to animal cloning. You notice we were invited to give a perspective, we are not invited to give an opinion. Only proper science gives opinions. Social science is obviously a bit second-rate, therefore we could have a perspective. And I spend a lot of time on this committee trying to explain that social science is as scientific as quite a number of the sciences that the hard scientists are working with, toxicology, for example, which is one of the most curious black box issues in science one could come across. Uh, but anyway, we were invited to give an opinion. And what we did was to uh, look across what uh, public uh, research should be, what research had been done on the public, and it turned out there was almost no research on animal cloning for food products. But I'd been involved in a couple of uh, Eurobarometer surveys. These are surveys which are funded by the European Commission. They go out to all the member states, good quality research. And I can say that and hope that uh, Professor Bob Worcester here, who's chairman of Moray, will nod and say they're not too bad. I mean, they're, they're quite well designed. Uh, and in these surveys, we'd ask one or two questions, which summarize here very briefly. Uh, this is 1996. And in 1996, uh, something was produced called the Harvard Oncomouse. This was a mouse which was particularly genetically modified to enable researchers to do more precise treatment or more precise investigations of cancer. And as you see, with Harvard Oncomouse, Risky, not morally acceptable, and public not prepared to uh, support that. Um, xenotransplantation, that's another example. Uh, this is where, in the short, with the shortage of organs for um, heart transplantation, livers and so forth, xenotransplantation is a procedure whereby they take pigs, they give a some human genes to the pig so that the organs taken out of the pig can be transferred, uh, transplanted into humans, and the organ comes with a flag on it that it's like a human organ, not a pig organ. If you had a pig organ put in without that extra human gene, it would be a traumatic rejection within three to four hours. But the idea with xenotransplantation is this would be a convenient way of filling the absence of, um, or the relative absence of human organs. And here again you can see it's xenotransplantation, potentially somewhat useful, highly risky, uh, morally unacceptable, and indeed the public were not prepared to support that. And it turns out that's more or less the scientific opinion on account of what are called porcine retroviruses, that certain animals carry around viruses which have no effect on that organism, but if they jump to another organism, the process of zoonosis, then they can come out. And then in 1999, we followed up, we, we do these surveys about every three or four years, and that's when Dolly the sheep came along, and here's public assessment of Dolly the sheep. And remember, Dolly was not produced for foodstuffs. The idea of Dolly the sheep was that that would lead on to the production of uh, sheep with similar genetic uh, characteristics, and their milk would, uh, with some other modifications, carry certain vaccines for inoculation and so forth. And Dolly the sheep, as you see, a certain amount of use, very risky, and uh, not morally acceptable, not uh, gaining too much, well, get, not getting support from the public. So, was we supposed to come to this one? Oh, yes. So I want to uh, characterize the way in which the public are thought about, the way in which scientists, the press, the elites think about the public when it comes to issues, science and technology, and indeed many other issues. And in psychology, the information processing model, which came about when I was an undergraduate in the 1960s, that really changed the way in which people thought about the human operator. In the past, 
I might have, if I'd done an undergraduate degree in the 50s, I'd have had a good dollop of Freudian theory and various other things. But the computer metaphor, which influenced things like ideas of memory, the hard disk reflecting the same as long-term memory, rapid access memory being short-term memory, in so many areas, in thinking about the human mind, the cognitive model took over. And when that's applied to the public's views of science and technology, we get these metaphorical images of, of the public as intuitive scientists trying to make sense of what's happening in scientific innovation and intuitive risk managers. People weigh up what they think might be the risks, the benefits, the costs, and so forth. And I think those two images of the public really dominate the way in which uh, public opinion is thought about in uh, many different circles. Now, is there a gap? What happens when there's a gap between experts and the public? Well, is there a gap, first of all? Yes and no. We all know that, oh, let's take genetically modified foods. If you lined up a hundred scientists, you'd probably find one who thought there might be a possible risk of genetically modified foods to human health. If you lined up 100 members of the British public, you'd probably find about 65 of them think that eating genetically modified food will create a third ear, change their genes, or have some deleterious impact. Uh, occasionally, public and experts agree. GM pharmaceuticals, most of the pharmaceuticals you eat are now produced via the method of recombinant DNA. It's much more precise. The quality of the pharmaceuticals is better. I've talked about xenotransplantation. The public don't like it, and most scientists think it's too dangerous. And what happens when there is a gap between the experts and the public? Uh, well, first of all, science education. There's a belief that, on the whole, if the public knew about more about the science, they wouldn't be put off by it. So the European Commission, various bodies in this country and other countries spend a lot of time trying to explain the science to the public. It's the sort of, it's what's called the deficit model. If the deficit can be reduced between scientific facts, so to speak, and public knowledge, then the public would be much more relaxed about the science. And in terms of the intuitive risk manager, it's often said the problem with science is we don't have good communicators, we, don't have the, we need to get the trusted sources, the Lord Winstons of this world, to explain the facts. And with a trusted source of information, then that will help the intuitive risk manager make the right choices. But there are other metaphors, there are other ways in which people think which have to be taken into account, I believe. And one might characterize it as something along these lines. Scientists may assure us that something is safe to eat, but the intuitive politician comes along and says, well, is it equitable? Uh, are some people going to benefit more than others? Is this just something that's going to benefit industry and it'll have no uh, use for us? People worry about consumer rights. Will there be labeling? Will there be sufficient information? Again, people can think it's safe, and they might be intuitive ethicists who ask the question, is this morally acceptable? Is this the sort of thing we want to have in the world in which we live? And then there are intuitive theologians who have, I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, but you know, they do have beliefs. And some religions uh, take particular issues, non-contingent beliefs. It's not a matter of weighing up risks and benefits in a utilitarian way. There are some things that are simply not allowed. And lying behind these other logics, beyond the uh, intuitive scientist and the intuitive ethicist, uh, the intuitive risk manager, these are based on shared values, presumptions, prescriptions, normative prescriptions about how we should live our lives and what is right and wrong. So when we scratched our heads and thought about um, cloned animals in the food chain, my colleagues and I felt that this was really a bit of a cocktail of public sensitivities. 
So we have three areas, food, animals, and the life sciences. Now, the life sciences are the sciences of life, of most controversies around science in the last 20 years. I would say the majority are focusing on developments in the life sciences. Then we have animals. In different European countries, there's more or less concern about animal welfare. But certainly in the northern European countries, Denmark in particular leads the field, Britain too, animal welfare is an important issue. People may well be very happy to eat them, but they do expect animals to be treated in certain decent ways. And then food. Food is a very controversial area. I mean, it may just seem to pass on the plate. In some countries, it may be just a matter of filling one's body with calories and so forth. But food has a wonderfully long history, cultural significance, and so forth. That's another lecture. But if we put these things together, uh, life sciences and food that produced genetically modified foods, which have been contentious since 1996. If we put life sciences and animals together, we get Dolly the sheep, transgenic animals, xenotransplantation. All very controversial areas. And if we put food and animals together, we get meat products. And meat is a very, of all the foods, meat is the most sensitive. There are very few religions, there are very few taboos around eating vegetables. All the taboos are about blood, meat, things like that. And on top of that, in Western Europe, we have the BSE crisis, which seems to color many of the contemporary debates on uh, new developments in food technologies. So if we put all those together and we have the question mark in the middle, so to speak, cloned animals for food products and a presumption that that in the next few years will involve genetic modification, that would seem to be a heady cocktail. And indeed, uh, DG Sanko decided that they should run what's called a flash Eurobarometer. It's a survey which goes out, I think it's probably a telephone survey, and they asked a few interesting questions. So 80% know what cloning is. Uh, Dolly the sheep was really well covered. They think that animal cloning is uh, morally wrong. 75% think they're ethical issues. And intriguingly, uh, the benefit seems more or less exclusively to be going to the food industry. And finally, people want labeling of such products, both the F1s and the F0s. What are the political responses? Well, there was a uh, discussion in the European Parliament on cloning animals, and uh, it was rejected by 92% of the MEPs. I don't think there has been a vote that has gone so far in one direction in the European Parliament over the last few years. So the MEPs completely against, if it were to be, uh, to come in, they uh, demanded labeling, but there was, uh, they urged for an embargo on all products deriving from cloned animals. And what's happened? Well, because the scientific evidence says there's no risk, the, the European Group on Ethics said there are problems, public opinion is against, they've kicked it into the long grass. A new commission is just being, so to speak, uh, sworn in. There are hearings at the moment in the European Parliament, and the commission will be producing an opinion next year. So I think that's just hoping the issue will go away. So in a way, it seems to me, looking at this whole issue, we have four cultures of risk. With respect to this particular application, uh, the scientific uh, approach looks for empirical evidence of problems with which might be toxicological, genotoxic, i.e. would the genetic modification carry any implications for humans, and would there be any increased allergenic reactions. To that one might add these days epigenetic effects, because in the process of cloning, 
there can be some change to the, um, uh, in the genetic makeup of the uh, cloned organism, so-called epigenetic effects, and nobody's really quite sure what these are and how to measure them. So we have the scientific approach. Then we have what one might call professional ethics. These are the ethicists who sit around weighing up the evidence, weighing up detail of the arguments, questions about need and so forth. Then we have the public's view of risk, which contains, yes, the intuitive logics of the intuitive scientist and risk manager, but these other considerations which are way outside the purview of contemporary scientific-based regulation. And then I guess we've got the economic risk, because Viagen is a private company, uh, they have a profit and loss account to uh, deal with, so they have some risks, and I suppose there might be potential risks on limiting innovation. One of the arguments about, uh, or one of the challenges for those people who are opposing genetically modified foods is that Europe has missed out on 10 years of research, uh, 10 years of development of new crops and so forth, and this is a cost to European nations. So coming back to my uh, home discipline, social psychology, one of the things I'm intrigued by is how people form views, how people represent issues like um, animal cloning. How do people understand the new? And uh, well, they might understand it as something better than conventional meat. They might think of cloning as another BSE fiasco in the making. Uh, one of the interesting issues is whether the public will distinguish between the F0s, the cloned animal, and the progeny. On the whole, what people think is that strange parentage produces strange offspring. And that's why I think people will see the F1s, the progeny, as somewhat unnatural. And uh, as my French colleague on the committee in Palmer says, uh, there is a natural superiority to the natural. And anything that moves away from that will be treated with some suspicion. Now, of course, some would argue, well, let the market decide. If the products are labeled, then people can choose them or not choose them, as the case may be. But that, in a sense, throws the thing back into a sort of consumer logic. There are other logics, the ethical logic and so forth, that may well be informing opinions, quite regardless as to whether people think it's a good idea to have products labeled or not. And I, looking back on some of our research, uh, we've published one or two papers on why are GM foods such a problem for the public. And one of the reasons they're a problem for, a pub for the public is there's no plausible uh, benefit for the public. GM food seems to be something that benefits farmers and benefits seed manufacturers, but the public doesn't see a need for them, and if you don't see a need for it, well, why bother with it? And I think that may be a problem for animal cloning too, that unless, for the meat-eating population of the world, animal cloning produces either better quality meat or substantially cheaper meat, a lot of people all think, why do we need this in the first place? So, coming on to some questions, and my main question is, is science-based risk assessment sustainable? Because if we look back over the last 15 years of um, discussions, controversies, and protests, etc., etc., on GM food, what this has done is to bring science and the regulatory bodies in this country and in Europe into some disrepute because a lot of people think that the regulators are just ignoring public opinion, that they are supporting governments and the regulatory bodies are supporting multinational companies. And interestingly enough, if you look at the amount of political time that has gone into the great GM debate, uh, the European taxpayer and the national taxpayer has spent an awful lot of money 
or has contributed a great deal of money to what seems to be a never-ending discussion. But the problem is, how does one take account of what I call public ethics when the regulation of food, which comes under world trade uh, regulations, uh, and world trade regulations would treat public ethics as fundamentally a non-tariff barrier. It would be illegitimate. So, with respect to genetically modified food, America, Canada, and Argentina took Europe to the uh, court, WTO court, which ruled against Europe. Nothing's changed, but it shows that with WTO creating its regulation around quotes unquote sound science, it is simply not possible to bring in these other considerations. Now, were they to be bought in, I think it creates something of a dilemma. Because if uh, we stick to purely scientific regulation, then there's the risk of affronting the public, public outrage. But if, for example, it were agreed that public views should enter into regulatory debates and so forth, then how would you decide which public views were legitimate? How would you get beyond the position that every objection that anyone likes to make, how would you determine which were the legitimate ones or not? So I think it is a problem. But I do think we need to rethink food regulation, and I'm going to make some suggestions. Firstly, scientific risk assessment always focuses on the problems. It wants to check up that novel foods will not increase allergenicity, toxicity, or whatever. But, as I've argued, the public, while I'm not arguing that the public aren't concerned about the risks, I mean, nobody walks into a shop and says, I'd like a highly toxic piece of this, or I'd like some more allergenetic uh, X or Y. The public wants to know things are safe, but they also want to know about, and particularly for novel foods, the benefits. So I wonder if risk assessment should be reformed to take into account of both the risks and the benefits which accrue to the public. So, if a novel food offers no tangible benefits, what's the point? Why should the European taxpayer uh, be supporting the European Food Safety Authority and all its risk assessment procedures if the uh, product on offer gives no tangible benefit? So, what I think we ought to discuss is, or somebody ought to discuss, is taking on something akin to the patent laws. The pat you can get a patent for lots of, lots of different things, but it has to fulfill three criteria. One, it has to be original. Two, it has to have some defined use. It has to be useful. And thirdly, it must not affront the ordre publique. So, you can, for example, take a patent out on a very effective new machine gun which will kill thousands of people. You can't take a patent out on a letter bomb, which might only kill a few people, uh, because on the whole, people think letter bombs aren't such a tremendously good idea, and, uh, but killing hundreds of people with uh, machine guns, well, as long as you've got, um, hope to have some UN treaty or UN resolution in favor of it, according to uh, yesterday's discussion, the other side of uh, London, that's okay. But seriously, I think to allow or to encourage the uh, presumption that innovation, and it's almost an oxymoron to say an, an innovation has no benefit. I mean, this seems absurd. But I think what people would come back and say is, oh, but these innovations have benefits for farmers, they have benefits for this, that, and the other. There may be no benefits for the public. But at the end of the day, the public are the end users. If we talk about the food chain from farm to fork, as they call it, it is the public who are holding the fork. And it seems to me not unreasonable to ask questions about 
the limited purview that scientific risk assessment produces at the risk of affronting the public, and that might well be solved by taking into account in the regulatory process an assessment of the upside as well as the downside of innovation. Thank you very much. Happy to answer any questions or observations. Madam. Oh, good idea. Can you hear? Thank you. I wish I'd had a third ear to hear better, but <laughs> the question is, uh, I remember when the discussion was on, or still is on obviously, about GM foods, there was um, a lot of talk, a lot talk about people who grow their own rice, for instance, little farmers, and you know, all become de dependent on Monsanto, to put it succinctly. Uh, isn't the question of fertility with, with animals in, in that direction? I mean, if, if we get um, cloned animals, I mean, would, would like little farmers not be able to, what do you call it, make their own pigs or whatever? Um. I mean, well, some, some people have raised the issue of biodiversity. If cloning became too popular, there would be a relatively restricted gene pool, and that over years that would be um, uh, un unfavorable. But I think in terms of your specific question, uh, you know, I guess if somebody clones you know, their daisy, the cow, or whatever it might be, and then daisy produces by IVF and the other techniques, progeny after progeny after progeny. I, d I don't th it, 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 it's not quite like the, the, the parallel to the Monsanto running the, the seed chain and prohibiting, um, you know, suing farmers who seem to have GM foods and haven't paid their patents and all that sort of thing. I, d I don't think that would hold. I mean, pretty much you get the clone and then you do what you would do normally as a farmer. Gentlemen It's a very interesting discussion, actually. Thank you for that. Um, it reminds me of the um, debate a few years ago about irradiated foods, in fact, where there's clear benefits on food irradiation with care, and um, it got mixed up with radioactivity, of course, and that um, tends to turn public opinion against it. Well, the question you, I don't think you have answered is, um, or raised is what is public opinion? And public opinion actually is the headlines in the daily newspapers. And it's those headlines which actually determine whether these foods or anything is going to be acceptable. Um, I can say that um, no large retail organisation would accept anything that could be challenged as being horrendous or new or novel because none of them will compete with each other none of them can afford to come out in favor of um, cloned foods any more than they can GM foods and none of them will accept them because they know the bad headlines one day is um, a bad set of results at the end of the year you make a number of interesting points there um Thank you very much. Yeah, the uh, food retailers are almost part of the regulatory um, chain, I suppose one would say, and, and certainly uh, they were not prepared, most were not prepared to accept genetically modified food for a variety of reasons, economic, but also they certainly didn't want to uh, take on the public, so to speak. Uh, irradiating food, you're right. I mean, it was um, a problem in that the perception, the public perception is crucial and people perceived that to be closely associated with radiation. If they'd called it cold pasteurization, which uh, some wiseacre thought up after the event, it might have been more successful. But is public opinion just what's in the newspapers? You know, I think, I think you're, you're, you're probably right, but I, there are times at which public opinion itself has been found to be quite surprising and to have shifted uh, 
policy responses. I'm thinking of the Human Genetics Commission, and they were particularly concerned about the police holding uh, genetic samples of um, both arrested and suspected criminals. And the Human Genetics Commission was very concerned about this, and then I think they, somebody did a survey for them or somebody did some focus groups and the public said, brilliant idea. <laughs> the, if, if, it's, if it's a way of catching criminals, no problem at all. And certainly the people I knew on the Human Genetics Commission were very, very sensitive about this and completely surprised that public opinion was in favor and it's gone ahead and now it's being reversed. If you remember, the police have something like six million uh, people's um, genetic profile on record, and they're, they're reducing it very slowly. But um, at least that would not have been possible had it not been for that surprising finding. And I don't think that was the Daily Mail or the Daily Express. But there are clear examples where certain newspapers take on a campaigning stance and this has a profound influence on the trajectory of technologies. Yes, that was the Daily Telegraph, wasn't it? Franken, Frankenfood, mail. Yeah. Gentleman in the yellow. Uh, thank you, two questions. Firstly, the thing that struck me was uh, perhaps more on GM than cloning, it seems extremely human-centric, anthropocentric, without the risk assessment to the wider environment, especially considering GM and the lack of control we have once it's out there. Um, and should this be included more in regulation? And secondly, on, on I guess, the uh, public ethic, how do you define in a globalised world, as the WTO has had trouble doing, um, how do you define between uh, one ethic of one country and another? And is there the risk of, say, that China did, using it for protection? Your first point about GM food, I think in uh, Regulation 2001-18-EC, which is the, um, the crucial bit of regulation on GM food, of course the environmental impacts are mentioned as one of the risks that needs to be assessed. The great problem really was determining what are environmental impacts. Uh, people talked about it would reduce biodiversity and when research was done on biodiversity nobody could really define what was a normal level of biodiversity partly because biodiversity in the winter is much lower than in the summer so you know it's, it's such a sort of I mean, it, it, it's almost an impossible risk to assess um, and you're absolutely right in a globalized world how does one you know, does one decide on a global ethic? I, I would have thought one is hard enough deciding on a national one. But on the whole, most of the regulatory bodies deal with the world divided up into different states, and it's up to those countries, states, whatever, I would have thought to uh, determine um, best guess at public ethics of that uh, particular country. I mean, there are and a good example would be, after Dolly the Sheep was introduced, it is claimed that there was almost a global rejection of human cloning. So there may be some extreme cases where pretty much everyone says, no thank you. And there'll be cases which, in a particular country, there'll be more or less a consensus, and then there'll be cases in a particular country where I think one would see very different views. Maybe that's the uh, challenge of contemporary liberal democracies. How does one manage? How does one cope with plurality? I don't know what the answer is. I mean, the answer in part in this country um, for all new developments in public policy, and it applies to science and technology, the Cabinet Office has guidelines on public consultation. And in my judgment, most people don't expect uh, their views necessarily to influence the policy process. But what they want to know is that their views are being heard. And I think the 
acceptance of the Cabinet Office guidelines, which has made the public voice or voices much more apparent uh, to those who are thinking about regulation and policy making. I think that, I mean, if one were a bit negative, one would say that has constrained the scope for controversy. Or if one were a bit more positive, one would say it has afforded people a voice uh, when they didn't think they had a voice. There is a duty on the part of those who are consulting the public to explain the decision and the reasons why certain views have not been accepted. And I think that's made quite a difference. I mean, it's a bit of a contrast with the US FDA and EFSA who consult the public and then, you know, I mean, they may report it, but it functionally they file it in the waste bin. Um, you really don't see much of an active response. But I think from the Human Genetics Commission, from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, you do see a much greater sensitivity to uh, a variety of positions put forward amongst the public. Sorry, a couple over there and then one in the middle. We've got five more minutes because I'm sure people have got. Chris. Um, George, I was wondering how you would see Europeans ever seeing there being a public benefit in, in the sense that most of the benefits seem to eventually translate into um, improvements in yield. And for as long as you have a sort of uh, a lack of perception of a risk of sh food, so food shortages in Europe as opposed to, say, in developing populous countries where a concern for improving um, uh, food uh, availability is clearly a major public benefit, then I, I find it difficult to see how the sorts of technologies are likely to be perceived by Europeans as having a public benefit. Well, let me give you an example. Um, two or three years' time, we'll see genetically modified potatoes, which are resistant to blight. And um, at the moment, potatoes probably get, in a wet year, eight, ten uh, doses of pesticide or anti-blight anti stuff and pesticide. And, I mean, my own feeling is if, if people were aware of the um, impact of endocrine disruptors, and most pesticides are endocrine disruptors, and pesticide residues seem to me to be, you know, probably something one should uh, make a bit of an effort to avoid, I would have thought in terms of a comparative risk assessment, people might say, well, you know, on the whole, I'd prefer to eat potatoes that have not been sprayed eight times. They may be genetically modified to stop them getting blight. So that might be a benefit which some people would find attractive. And I suppose the other thing is, um, you know, there's a report uh, last week on the amount of U.S. maize which is going into biofuels. It's about 20%. And most of European cattle are fed on maize, and the price of maize is going to go up. As we saw last year, there were really very substantial price rises in some of the base commodity crops. So I think we might see in Europe some very significant increases in food prices, and that may persuade people that if there are crops which happen to be genetically modified, which have bigger yields, that will bring an economic benefit. I hasten to add, I'm not arguing in favor of GM foods. So. Um, excuse me if you find it a simplification on my side, but I was wondering, Oh, aren't we in some spheres actually mixing the ethics with the fear of unknown? And as you saw, the polls, uh, that the result of a poll, it turned out that actually people in Europe are much favorable for, I would say, new technologies in a, term, in a case of medicines and, and genetic testing, while they are less favorable in case of GM foods, for example which would show, I mean, we all realize, for example, the limitations of the medicine, and this is why we are much more open to new technologies. While in Europe, having enough to eat and having actually found out that the less processed it is, the nicer taste is, then we don't see that need to have it introduced. 
while if we would, let's say, conduct a pool in, in Africa where people do not have enough to eat, maybe they will uh, approach towards GM foods and, and cloning would be completely different and not really because of the ethical aspect but because of the need and uh, their approach toward risk would be much more different. I quite agree. I, you see, I, I mean, I think the intuitive politician asks, you know, it, do we need this? Um, and asks questions about uh, equity, who's benefiting. Um, indeed, I'm sure you're right. Uh, it, some of the genetically modified crops, what are they called? What are called orphan crops. So, really, the money to be made out of GM was with the big commodity crops. They're orphan crops in uh, Africa where they are decimated. Well, decimated is in one in ten. These, I don't know what, 70% of the yield goes, is eaten by caterpillars, this, that, and the other. And GM, particular type of cauliflower grown in West Africa, it's just staggering, the increase in yield. And people like it, and that's exactly the point you're making. We live in a time of plenty. It is difficult to persuade uh, many people of a reasonable need for these things. Sorry, question around here. Make this the last question. Thank you. Um, I want to ask, uh, what do you think about the issue of uh, biodiversity in um, uh, GM animal food production, as was raised uh, by the first question? You th I think you said uh, some, some people have raised, raised the issue, and I want to ask uh, what you think uh, personally about it. I have to admit, I haven't given it too much thought. Um, at the end of the day, with uh, cattle production and IVF, one, one bull is probably servicing thousands and thousands of, of, of cows. So I think one would have to look at contemporary farming practice as the benchmark and see if cloning were to take place, whether, how that would, what, what, imp, what differential impact it would make. At the end of the day, cloning is a pretty expensive technique, thirty to forty thousand um, dollars. It'd be interesting to see whether, even amongst farmers, this catches on. One of the areas where it's terribly important, actually. Um, is in this new research on epigenetics because there's a little herd in France of about 20 or 30 cloned cattle and as they've grown up um, various things happened during the, the, uh, the pregnancy and it's almost introduced an entirely new science and that is uh, on, on uh, reproductive epigenetics. So what happens in the process of pregnancy and birth which can have a substantial effect on the offspring in terms of newly acquired very small genetic influences. So uh, in terms of biodiversity and science itself cloning has really contributed what appear to be some very exciting and uh, interesting new avenues and questions that simply weren't... People could have asked the question before, but nobody would have known how to do research on it. So, hardly answers your question, but... Anyway, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>